I hope that you're still in Luke chapter 2. I want you to look again at those verses that we read and the moment that is recorded for us there at the end of Luke's account of Jesus' birth. After the very famous sort of, we could say, uh, nativity narrative, we might call it, in the beginning half of Luke chapter 2, we have this scene in which we jump ahead by eight days or so. It says in verse number 21, that when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then in the next uh, three verses, in verse 22, we jump ahead by another 30-odd days. And it says, when the days of her, that is Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In this scene and the scene that follows when we greet that priest named Simeon, we have what is going on, Mary and Joseph uh, faithfully dedicating their newborn son according to the law of Moses. Which I find an extremely fascinating aspect that these two, Mary and Joseph, despite their financial status, despite their social status, we might say, they are dedicating and they have dedicated their lives to following God's law. And in fact, in verses 21 through 24, the evangelist Luke mentions the law and their following of it some three or four times. Emphasizing again that Jesus was the son who was born under the law, who has come to fulfill the law for us, as it says in Galatians. And even as they're diligently keeping the rites and the ceremonies of the faith, we might say, Jesus' parents were uh, doing what, what their faith was instituted for. And it just so happens that on this day, the day of Jesus' presentation, the day in which he was dedicated to the Lord's service, as the law uh, Lord, uh, uh, predicted or uh, <laughs> constructed them to, that the priest on duty this particular day was Simeon. Again, look at verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. This description of this priest, Simeon, is one that we ought to take note of as he is called just and devout. He is a faithful man of God who has lived a full life of faithful service to God. Exercising his priestly duties countless times throughout the years. And he has exercised those same tasks and assignments on his calling. As he has said, waiting expectantly for the consolation of Israel. He has spent his days patiently longing for the arrival of the Messiah. And that we are not told what prompted it or what preceded. He is given one of the most tremendous privileges, I think, in all of Scripture. As he is given the promise by the Spirit that he would not see death before he has seen the Lord's Christ. Notice verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death 
Before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah who had long been promised and long sought for is the one that he has given the promise now that he will not see his eyes closed for the final time until he has seen this one, the Christ. Think about that word for a moment. Think about that promise that comes into Simeon's life. It doesn't tell us when about in his life he was given this promise. Whether he was a middle-aged man, whether he was an older man, maybe he was a younger man. It doesn't tell us when it is that he receives this promise from the Holy Ghost, this word from God's Spirit, that he would see the Christ. But I imagine that regardless of when it was, he daily proceeded to the temple with no small amount of anticipation or excitement that perhaps this would be the day. Perhaps this would be the afternoon in which he would see the one, the Messiah. The one that he knew, as he says here, would console Israel and be Israel's comforter. And it just so happens that it is this day. Notice verse 27, it says, And he came by the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus... To do for him after the custom of the law. Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He's going about his priestly duties, perhaps conducting other sacrifices and other rites of faith in that same temple room. And as it says, with the Holy Ghost directing him and guiding him and filling him. And then out of the corner of his eye, he catches a glimpse of this very meager, very ordinary peasant couple. And he knows that they are peasants. And he knows that they are of the poorer class because of their offering that they come bearing. Two turtle doves, it says, or pigeons, which was the offering of those who were poor and pitiful of state. They walk in, there's... Nothing spectacular about them. Nothing noteworthy about them. Indeed, they appear very average. Or we could say less than average because of their poor estate. And yet, he notices the mother carrying a newborn. The mother is cradling one that is barely a month old. That's when the spirit moves. And the spirit moves on Simeon in such a way that he knows that's him. That's the one. Imagine this moment for Simeon. Years perhaps, decades perhaps, of waiting and longing to see this moment in which he could catch a glimpse of the Christ of God. And yet here it says he has him in his arms. His eyes, I imagine, widen with just holy awe and reverence and wonder. The Messiah was not just in his midst, it was, he was in his arms. Notice again verse 28. Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Again, as we've been noting, as we've been examining Luke chapter 1 and 2 in the last several weeks, um, think about this moment for just what it is. 
A priest is praising God that all of those long, uh, almost forgotten promises of the Old Testament are now fulfilled and accomplished all because a baby barely a month old is in his presence. And he sees, yes, he sees by the Holy Spirit and the faith that he has been so dedicated to for all those long years that this is the moment that he's been waiting, waiting for, the arrival of the Messiah. So just like Mary's song and Zacharias' songs before him, this song that he here expresses is just full of hope and expectation and longing and fulfillment. And it's all here in this newborn baby. This child that he has in his arms is here said to him by the Spirit, the long-awaited Messiah. He's here. He has arrived. This was... I have no doubt, a moment of trembling for Simeon. A moment of goosebumps, we could say. <laughs> Again, that, that testimony that we have, that he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, comes from many places. Let me just read you a couple of passages so you can get the gist of perhaps what he's referring to. The book of Isaiah mentions this cons- the, the comforter, the consoler of God's people several times. In Isaiah chapter 49 verse 13, the prophet says this. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people, and he will have mercy upon his afflicted. And then just a couple pages over in Isaiah 51, notice verse 3. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found there in thanksgiving. And the voice of melody. And then in verse 12 even of that same chapter. He says I even I am he that comforteth you. Who art thou? That thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass and forgetst that the Lord thy maker that hath stretched forth the heavens and hath laid the foundations of the earth and hath feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed and that he should not die in the pit nor that his bread should fail but I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea whose waves roared the Lord of hosts is his name this is Israel's consolation this is the one this is the one they have sung about the one they have learned about through all of those many synagogue days in Sunday school The consoler of Zion is coming. And Simeon says he is now here. I have seen thy salvation. No wonder it says in verse 33 that Jesus' parents marveled. They are wondering at these sayings. They are awestruck at this song of the priest here as they come into this temple place. And yet the priest continues. Simeon continues verse 34 back in our text. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. 
This word of blessing is somewhat ominous, but it's also so full and so rich of what this Jesus would come and do, of what the Messiah would accomplish. And overall, it's a moving scene. Simeon's confession of the Messiah here, this reception and recognition of what is going on, that the long-sought-for king is now here. It's moving, especially if you put yourself in Simeon's shoes, I think, but I think there's more here that's going on than just what we see on the surface. Pay attention, again, notice verses 26 and 29. Pay attention to some of the rather choice words that are used in this praise of the Lord. Because I think there's, we might say, a subversive sort of subtext to this song of Simeon. And in fact, to the whole chapter that Luke has here recorded for us in the nativity of Jesus. And I think it almost goes unnoticed half of the time. Notice verse 26, it says, Luke is recording, writing about Simeon, that he is treasuring in his heart, as he says, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. One of the only times, I think the only time that that phrase appears in this manner. The Lord's Christ, the Supreme One's Son, is what we could say. That's what he's been waiting for. That's what he's been treasuring in his heart for all those long years. This imminent arrival of this one. But notice also verse 29. Because after he has seen him, after he has held him in his arms and by the spirit, he knows that this child is that Messiah. Notice he says, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. And Lord here is not the same as we often see elsewhere. Not the same Greek word in its original languages. In fact, it's actually more of a word which we would translate despot. It's meant to signify one who holds absolute rule, absolute authority over all things. Again, it's an interesting designation. Simeon is saying that his God is his despot, his absolute ruler. When I think of a despot, I think of a tyrant, one who rules by fear, one who rules by intimidation. And yet Simeon calls his God his despot. Which I think signifies a couple of things. One, I think it signifies that he knew where he stood. Simeon knew where he stood in this grand story of God and what he was doing in this world. And he knew that his life was bound to this one who was his ruler, his supreme authority, his Lord and God. You see, I think Simeon's entire proclamation here, as he receives and recognizes this Messiah yet in this little child, emphasizes, I think, the supremacy and the authority of God. Yes, even in the events which led up to Jesus' birth. Because although Christ may have arrived through a very lowly birth, a very lowly means that was very uncelebrated and unassuming, Even still, he is the Lord of all. That baby has not lost any ounce of his power as the one who is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah, even as he is a swaddling baby in the manger. 
And he rules over all things in love and holiness. He is the Lord's Christ. The one that says in Colossians through whom all things consist. He is the preeminent one. And he has come now to deliver his people. The son of God. And why is this so significant? Well, notice the very familiar verses which begin this whole chapter. Go back to verse 1. And I'm just going to read them because I think it's important. But notice how he begins this narrative of Jesus' birth. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for him, for them in the inn. There's a sense, I think, in reading this that Luke is, is trying to situate this story within history. As we noted several weeks ago, that Luke is a very particular man when it comes to the facts of the stories that he's relaying. And he wants you to be sure that this is a true account, a true tale that you can go and research for yourself. But I think there's also a sense when she's hastening through all that, hastening through all of the history and all of the hoopla of all those details to get to the main attraction. Here's what's going on in those days. Here's your bearings in terms of history and all of what's going on. But let me tell you about something way more important than all of that. Way more important than who's ruling Rome. Here's let me, let me tell you who uh, I want to tell you about. This firstborn son of Mary. He barely mentions Caesar, Caesar Augustus, as he says there in verse number two, before he gets to the main deal, the firstborn son of Mary. You might be thinking, okay, so what? Well, this would be like talking about the Civil War with barely mentioning Abraham Lincoln. This would be almost unheard of. You couldn't talk about one thing without the other. This time in history was riddled with this man, Caesar Augustus. You might know him as the first emperor of Rome. Rome's first true imperator. And he came to power after his great uncle, the infamous Julius Caesar, was assassinated. That's who this Caesar Augustus is. His original name was Gaius Octavius. Or Octavian, depending on which history book you're reading. And he later changed his name to Augustus because of what it means. It means great, it means venerable, it is suggestive of someone who deserves worship, who deserves preeminence. So you see this title Caesar Augustus is one that carries not just political significance, but religious significance as well. Indeed, by all accounts, Augustus here was considered a god in his time by many of those who followed him. And in fact, some of the currency from this era bears Augustus' likeness, and it also bears the inscription, Divine Caesar and, note, Son of God. This is who Caesar thought himself to be. 
He's a God amongst men, the leader of Rome, the one who solidified Rome into the empire that we know of today, the Roman Empire, which lasted thousands of years. And he is furthermore credited for ushering Rome into what we might call the golden age of that empire. It's called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, in which they endured 200 years or we should say enjoyed 200 years of seeming peace amongst the empire. Wars were decreasing and territories were increasing and prosperity became the norm. And it is all sort of credited and traced back to this man, Caesar Augustus. Such as why he's hailed and by many historians from that era of as being Rome's savior. Now can you see the juxtaposition with which Luke is now addressing his record of Jesus Christ? Rather than sing the praises of Rome's, we could say, peacemaker, the so-called son of God, he would rather instead focus on an infant who was born to peasant parents in the midst of a puny little town called Bethlehem. Why? Because (laughs) that little infant... That little infant who used a feeding trough for a makeshift cradle was the true son of God. The true Lord of all. The true God in the flesh had come. This is the Savior as it says the angels declare. This is Christ the Lord. This is no mere baby. Augustus holds no power here. Augustus' might and vitriol and the ways in which he leads his empire are as nothing compared to this baby in a manger who is the Christ of God. I like how one writer says that Christmas is putting Caesar in his place. And in fact, I think that's what's happening in this moment. Luke, throughout this narrative, is putting Caesar in his place, knowing and showing him that, yes, he might have been Lord of Rome, he might have been the leader of that great empire, but Christ, who is now born, is Lord of all. Heaven was invading this realm of darkness. The king of glory had come, the true king of kings. And I find it so fascinating that when Augustus issues this infamous decree that all the world should be taxed, I'm sure he did so, convinced that he was Lord, he was God, he was king, he was preeminent, and such is why he's issuing this taxation at all in order to advance his authority. Yet in issuing this decree, he was actually operating as a pawn within the government of the triune God. Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. And the word of God has prophesied some 700 years before that the son of God would be born in Bethlehem. And so by issuing this decree, Mary and Joseph make for his hometown of Bethlehem. And so all things were now accomplished. All things were now fulfilled. And as it says there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she bared her firstborn son. In Bethlehem, just as God's word said. 
All things were accomplished according to this word of the Heavenly Father. And this, I think, I find to be one of the greatest, finest examples of man sort of thinking that he is asserting his power and his might and his dominance over his life. When in fact, it's actually God's will that's being executed. It's not Caesar's will that's being accomplished when Mary and Joseph go up to Bethlehem. It's God's word that's being fulfilled. As it always is. God is always accomplishing his purposes and realizing his desired ends. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when it feels like this taxation is going to make things worse. God is fulfilling his promises. And we can echo like the historian in Joshua. That not one promise has failed. And even here it's bearing that out. This is how it is. God's word is always true. And it is always coming about just as God says that it is. Therefore, for as much willpower as mankind imagines that he has, he is not as in control as he thinks he is. Not by a long shot. He, like Augustus, can declare things. And make declarations of peace, we could say. Make treaties of all kinds and seek to bring the world into its utopia. But guess what? Who's in control? Not man. God is in control. Even, yes, in this moment, as a baby in a manger, he is the one through whom all things consist. Man is not as in control as he thinks he is. Let me give you an example of that. One not relegated to ancient Roman history, but one more contemporary to our day. In the year 2000, in September of that year, if you can remember that long ago, 8,000 or so delegates from all around the world convened for what is now known as the Millennium Summit. They gathered in the hub of New York City at the, the headquarters of the United Nations All of these delegates and world leaders. It was a veritable who's who gathering of the most influential and the most powerful people this world had to offer. So for three days they spent talking, convening and meeting and casting a vision for notably how to end the global poverty crisis and realize world peace. This is what this summit was all about. And at the summit, you can go and read this actually. They ratified what is known as the UN Millennium Declaration, which was a a globally sort of agreed upon document which united all these nations in this. Notice their words. These are their words, I quote. The fight for development for all the peoples of the world, the fight against poverty, ignorance, and disease, the fight against injustice, the fight against violence and terror and crime, and the fight against the degradation and destruction of our common home. It's a noble cause that they set out to have this meeting all about. It is good and noble, and it sounds well and good, this ratification of this particular declaration, until you remember what occurred on that very same soil not a year later. In fact, nearly 365 days to the day, September 11th happened, in which the same city, 
which hosted a bevy of the world's strongest, most insightful leaders this world could offer at a summit to quote-unquote realize world peace also witnessed the worst act of terror this world has ever seen. It's a sad and tragic irony, I think, there is in that. And in the two decades since, I think we can see and we can know for sure that we're nowhere closer to accomplishing anything that the summit has set out to accomplish. World hunger is still a tragedy. So is world war and world peace has not yet ever been realized. All of which to say, not that those things aren't noble in their own right, but it is to say this, that man is not as in control as he thinks he is. He is Lord over nothing. Presidents, dignitaries of all kinds can engage in as many priest treaties as they want. They can start as many missions to end poverty all around this globe as they desire. And those are good and righteous acts. But the oppressions of this world cannot be legislated out of existence. Especially... When those who in legislative power are the ones who are doing the oppressing, as Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he bemoans this oppression of this world that, is, that he calls under the sun. And indeed, like Solomon, we might have to make the same confession that oppression and injustice under the sun is something that is in a reality that is inconsolable. It's not systemic. Is endemic because of sin. So long as sin reigns in our mortal bodies, we might say, these oppressions will persist. And we are powerless in and of ourselves against them. I think what that moment in our own history shows, what this moment in Roman history shows is that man has no ability to achieve the things he knows or wants to realize in terms of, of making the world, quote, a better place. He's powerless to do such things. And I don't say that to uh, peddle some sort of bad news. I don't want you to see that as some sort of concession to the enemy and the cause of Satan. I want you to see this this morning. That this is precisely the void that Christ came to fill. He is the peacemaker. He is the one through whom peace comes into this world of chaos. And this is what Christmas celebrates That God became incarnate man just precisely for that reason. The eternal word of God, as it says in John 1, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Precisely for this reason. To realize the peace that we so desperately long for. This one who is before all things, and as it says there, by whom all things consist, took on skin and bone and flesh. This Alpha and Omega, he came into this world that was stricken with death and disease and disaster in order to bring an end to all of those things. Thus we say and we confess along with Simeon here this morning. That the Lord's Christ is the answer to all the evils in the world. 
All the evils under the sun find their remedy and their cure and their consolation in this one who is the Lord of all things. Regardless of what Washington says or Amsterdam or Brussels or any other city you can think of in which the most powerful leaders are residing. The answer to all of the tragedies of this life, they're found in the book that you have right in front of you. And they come as a result of the one who comes for us. You see, that's the wonderful, amazing declaration that we can make. That Christ is not only Israel's consolation, but he is the world's comforter. And he comes to give us his peace. Indeed, I, I think we have to confess this reality that this hope that Simeon sings of, this salvation that he recognizes in this child, this peace that he, along with all of Israel and all of the world, was so desperate for, could never have been legislated by anything even Caesar Augustus could legislate. The most infamous emperor in all of Rome, perhaps, could not even do it. His peace that he, yes, is recognized by history as accomplishing is but a small fraction Of what this babe Christ comes to accomplish. Indeed. Those things that we hope for. That we long for. That the ills of this world would be gone and eradicated. That hatred would go away. And an injustice would be put to bed. And death would be put to death. They can't be countersigned by some decree of man. Rather, as it says here, they are spoken into existence by this one who comes into our realm. Indeed, we could actually say in the language of Christmas that the hope and the salvation and the peace that we long for are birthed into being with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts right here. At this Christmas day. This Christmas night in which Jesus was born was heaven's declaration of war on all of the things that are opposed to the holiness of God. Indeed, not just the declaration of it, but the final beachhead affront of it. Because ever since Genesis 3 verse 15, when God promised Adam and Eve that the seed would come and crush the serpent's head, he has been at war with all things that that are likened to sin and death and darkness. And here, the final move is afoot. The final conflict is coming about. In which death would be put to death. And darkness would be pushed back into hell. And yes, the light and the glory of God's grace would reign. This is what we celebrate every December. When we celebrate Christmas, we are entering this time of holy remembrance. We are given this familiar story. The one that we've sung so many times, that we've read about so many times, is the greatest hit in all of the hits of the church. It's the one about Jesus lying in a manger with shepherds coming around him and singing his praises. And yet, for as long as we will live, there will always be depths of meaning in this beloved little story, forever reminding us that the king has arrived and he's not in Washington. 
the leader that we long for and hope for to make the world right, as he says, to make all things new, has arrived. And he's right here. He was right here in this little manger scene in little Bethlehem. And yes, right now, he is still alive, ruling and reigning, enthroned in the heavens for us. So every year, we're given the glorious reminder that we could never, ever save ourselves. God had to come do that for us. Someone better, someone outside of us, had to come and accomplish those things that we so desperately crave. And guess what? The good news is, that's exactly what he did. The peace we crave is found in this Prince of Peace. The the comfort that we so desperately need and long for and hope for is found in this one who leaves his comforter with us. The hope that we so desire to keep us afloat in this life of death and darkness is found in this one who is hope incarnate. Such is why I pray that you can sing along with the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, good will towards men. And yes, that declaration is not because of what Augustus was decreeing. It was because of who had been born. Peace and good will toward men. is a reality that is only exists because God came down in flesh and dwelt among us. And yes, we now have good tidings. We now have great joy with which we can sing these glorious songs. And we can reminisce on those wonderful carols. And we can sing and we can read these beloved scriptures. And we can say truly, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Because the true king has arrived. He has come and guess what? He's never giving up his throne. The king of Israel, the king of the world, the king of glory is one who will never abdicate his seat of authority. And yes, my friends, that is our comfort. Our comfort in our days of seemingly discomfort, of endless, inconsolable news that comes before our eyes. We have the comfort of the king before whom we tremble and sing with reverence and awe, glory to God and the highest. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.